Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, the season's an interesting thing. They're always changing, and uh, your hand is in that, even as you oversee and take care of and sustain this planet that you've given us to live on. We thank you, God, that um, we have the opportunity, a regular rhythm week after week after week to meet with you and hear from you and sing your praise and confess our sin and be reminded that in Jesus our sins are forgiven. And this is a time, God, now where we study together and we would ask you to be our teacher and to give us insight and understanding and enable these verses, this text that we look at, to change us. We believe you do that, and we ask you to do that now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far, we have uh, plowed our way through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And uh, as we've plowed, one of the things that we've noticed is a pretty consistent theme, kind of the downward spiral of the human race into sin and rebellion. It's not a pretty picture. Uh, it's kind of an alarming one, and a part of that picture is we've seen the judgment of God displayed. When Adam and Eve sinned, God expelled them from the garden. They were no longer welcome in the garden, and he puts an angel there with a flaming sword that's actually protecting the garden from Adam and Eve and from their rebellion. We saw that when Cain killed his brother Abel, God expelled Cain from the community and sent him off on his own. It was the judgment of God, but it was for the good of community. We saw uh, with regards to the flood, God judging the incredible sin that was uh, accumulating, so to speak, in the culture and in the society in the flood. And then again, God judges at the Tower of Babel. And so we see the judgment of God, but not just the judgment of God. In fact, there was a consistent theme, kind of an undertow in all of those stories that we looked at that displays the goodness of God. God's persistent work to establish a community of people who know him and who love him and who trust in him and who obey him, and frankly, who are blessed by him. Now, this morning, we're going to see God do something that if you had never read it before, now I know probably almost everybody here has read it, but if you've never read it before, this would be something that is wholly unexpected. This would be a whoa, you know, I didn't see that coming. Uh, there's a man, and his name was originally Abram. And God begins to do a work through this one man and through that man's family that's going to blossom and grow and become a nation, become a kingdom. And of course, Abram is his name in the beginning, but eventually, as we'll see, his name is changed to Abraham, which means the father of many. Now, in the context, it's often translated as the father of many nations, uh, but literally it means the father of many. God will make a covenant with this man named Abram. Uh, the covenant is an important idea for us. Before we go too far, we need to talk about that for just a bit. Uh, the whole structure of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is covenantal. A covenant is many things, but it's at least three. It's kind of always these three things. It's a binding agreement between two or more parties. That's one of the things that a covenant is. It's like a formal contract, a treaty. Secondly, it's usually full of promises and very often also threatened punishments if one does not keep the covenant. And then thirdly, a third thing is that very often there's a sign associated with a covenant. When God makes a covenant with us, he gives us a sign that constantly reminds us of this relationship that we have with him in covenant. Now, sometimes covenants were unilateral. Uh, when, when they were made between a more powerful party and a less powerful party, like a king making a covenant with his subjects, uh, oftentimes those covenants were unilateral. Other times, covenants could be bilateral. They, uh, we have an example, I think it's 1 Samuel 18, a covenant that David makes with Jonathan. It's a covenant of friendship. It's a, a between equals, you see. With Abram, something remarkable happens. The God of the universe enters into a covenant with a sinful, fallen human being. And that would have back then gotten a, one of those wow responses, like, oh man, did not see that coming. This covenant becomes the basis upon which God builds his community, upon which he makes a people for himself. And we're going to look at kind of four encounters that Abram has with God. And in each of these encounters, we get a, a little clearer picture of what the covenant this covenant thing is all about. 
So we're going to dive in in Genesis chapter 11, verse 31. You can follow along in your Bibles or you can read on the screen. This is what we read, the word of God. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haram. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God tells Abram, leave your country, leave your people, leave your tribe behind, leave everything that feels safe and familiar to you, including your old gods. Understand that up to this time, I mean, we don't know much about this. We're not given a lot of information, but we would rightly assume that Abram doesn't know this God, Yahweh, Jehovah. Uh, He's like everybody else, worshiping the gods of that local area and the city that he's in. Uh, We read uh, many, many years later when Joshua, uh, in the book of Joshua, uh, God is um, saying to the people of Israel, it says, Thus saith the Lord, this is Joshua 24, 2, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, they served other gods. So, okay, I mean, Abram, along with his father, and and so they were serving and following other gods, not Jehovah God, not Yahweh. But now (laughs) something new is happening. This this God has spoken to Abram and begins to reveal himself to Abram, and everything in Abram's life begins to change. And that, by the way, is how this works. If you're actually hearing from Jehovah God, Yahweh God, if if you're listening to him and getting to know him, well, I got news for you. Everything is going to be changing. Because that's just what happens to fallen, sinful human beings who come into contact with the real, one, true, living God. And so this God says to Abram, I want you to leave all that. I want you to separate from your family, from your gods, from your culture, and have different values, different priorities. Again, look at chapter 12, verse 1. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. That's not real specific. You notice that? <laughs> that's not a lot of information for Abraham to, or Abram to go back and talk to Sarai. You know, wives usually like to know details like this. Why are we moving? Well, you know, God told me to. Well, which God are we talking about? Which, which God is giving you this information? Uh, it, well, the one true God, the, the, this God who's been recently talking to me, Sarai. And where are we going? Well, I don't know, but God's going to show us when we get there. And uh, that had to be a really interesting conversation. <laughs> Uh, perhaps she needed more trust than, than even Abram did. I'm not sure. Uh, now understand Abram is not some uncouth nomad with nothing to lose in this whole deal. Genesis 12, 5 tells us that Abram was very, very prosperous. He's accumulated possessions. He's got servants and lots of them. I would assume also slaves. And he lives in this urban civilized setting of Mesopotamia, first Ur and then the city of Haran. Ezekiel 27, 23 lists Haran as one of the significant commercial centers of Mesopotamia in the ancient world. Uh, It's located there on the Euphrates River. And in that community, uh, Abram would have been a well-respected, known, successful, and secure individual. He's told to take off for a barbaric wilderness known as Canaan. Canaan is uncivilized. Canaan is uncouth. Canaan is unsophisticated. It's full of small cities with little chieftain kings. Not very significant. In Canaan, Abram will have no land, no networks, no connections, no prospects, no family living there. Uh, This move is financially and vocationally and culturally high risk. Very high risk. But there is this incredible promise from this new God that Abram is getting to know. 
There's a promise of descendants and a promise to become a great nation and a promise to have a great name and a promise of great blessing. Remember, God says, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And all of this, understand, uh, what, what this means to Abram is that he is going to be a part of something way bigger, way bigger than he can even imagine. Now, remember context here. We already know from Genesis eleven thirty that Abram and his wife, are, they're childless, no children. And God says, I'm going to make your name great. Do you remember what group of people earlier on when we studied said, we will make a, a great name for ourselves? Who's actually said that before I can wait Tower of Babel remember we will make a name a great name for ourselves and God brought judgment but now God is saying I'm going to make your name great Abram well what's going on well the point is I think God loves to exalt his people but people who are living humbly trusting in obeying loving walking with him, but when the arrogant are exalted or seek to exalt themselves, well, it usually gets destructive for them and for everyone else around them. But here, God initiates a covenant of blessing with Abram, and it is a unilateral covenant because God, of course, is the stronger partner. Abram, of course, the weaker partner. In unilateral covenants, and there were lots of them in the ancient world. We have many actually examples of these ancient unilateral covenants that were made in the world of Mesopotamia. The stronger partner in these covenants was always after something, right? Uh, They wanted water rights. They wanted rights to graze their cattle uh, on your land. Or they wanted rights to tax your city, tax you specifically, or rights to garrison soldiers, or rights to conscript soldiers from among your people. The stronger partner is the point. The stronger partner always had an agenda in mind. That's why they wanted this covenant. And so the question here is where or what does God, the stronger partner, want or need in this deal, in this covenant? What is he looking to get out of Abram? Uh, He knows the human race. The whole first chapter, 11 chapters of Genesis are kind of a rehearsal of the fact that the human race is full of misery. It's full of heartache. It's full of ingratitude. It's full of depravity. It's full of corruption. It's full of sin. So what does God get out of this covenant? And the answer, short answer, is nothing. Nothing, really. Certainly nothing that God needs. Uh, What God gets out of this covenant is someone to bless, but that's not something God needs. Understand, the best, most loving, most self-sacrificing community that has ever existed is the Trinity. And it has existed forever, always. And in eternity past, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are loving and serving and caring about one another for one another. And so God doesn't need to add to that community. He's quite content, quite satisfied within the Trinity itself. And yet what we're learning is, is God is going to make a community. Why? Well, I don't know exactly. It's not because of some need or some weakness uh, a storm or some vacuum in God. It's just that God has decided to make a community of people and he is going to bless them. He's going to enter into covenant with them. And this is why all through the Old Testament, the Old Testament writers are frankly undone. They are staggered by this fact, by the fact that God would make a covenant with human beings. No God has ever done that before. Now this God does. This is why the Old Testament writers refer to the covenant some 285 times. God in the Old and the New Testament is always the God of the covenant. And a key phrase in this covenant, Genesis 12, 3, is where God says, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's not in some social justice sense that God is talking about there. Actually, we know this from you know, reading ahead in the story. Uh, what we know is being, being said there is that this is actually a prophetic, um, 
word about the coming or the announcement of Messiah, a deliverer. You, you know, go back to Genesis 3.15. There was that statement made uh, to Adam and Eve, e- even in the process of God cursing, God was giving good news, and that was that there was going to come a descendant from the woman whose heel would crush the head of the serpent. Well, this is just a, another iteration, a, another little piece of information. Uh, Abraham... Your descendants are going to wind up blessing all the nation. Well, that descendant is Jesus, the Messiah. Paul writes about this in a letter to the Galatian church uh, in the New Testament. This uh, Galatians 3.8, he says, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Talking about Messiah, just a few verses later, he says, and if you are Christ's, if you're in that community, well, then you are Abraham's offspring. You're the descendants that were promised way back then to to Abraham, heirs according to the promise. And so this covenant that God makes with Abraham is, in fact, it's a redemptive covenant. It's a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of promise. And we're going to see this uh, reiterated over and over as we move through the first five books of the Old Testament. So God says to Abram, leave everything and go where I tell you. And we read that Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. That's his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So at age 75, Abram is willing to risk it all on the promises of God. And let me just underline and highlight something. And that is that that is always a good thing to do. Always. Trust, obey, and follow God. Doesn't matter how old or how young you are. Trust, obey, and follow God. Develop that rhythm. Develop that pattern. Develop things that strengthen that that whole type of journey in your life. It's what Abraham was learning to do. It's what we must learn to do. It's what a disciple learns to do. And so what we find is, as we keep reading, Abram's journey begins. (laughs) And it's a messy one. It really is. It's a messy one. Abraham is not a a pillar of spiritual perfection. Uh, This is one of the beautiful things that I love about the Bible. It tells the truth. It doesn't paint pretty pictures where pretty pictures do not exist. Um, It even tells the truth when the truth is pretty ugly. Uh, The first thing Abram does is he goes to Canaan. And as soon as he gets there, he learns that the promised land is a land of famine. Yeehaw! Wow, what good news that is. I'm in the promised land and it won't support me. It can't feed me. What am I going to do now? So he comes up with a solution. He gets up and he heads down to Egypt where there's food. In those days, as you can well imagine, travel was extremely dangerous, especially for someone who was powerless or someone who was weak. So for women who in those cultures had very, very few rights, women depended on the protection of their husbands, depended on the protection of their fathers. And so in chapter 12, we read this. When he, Abram, was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. Don't mind the fact that you've been taken into a harem and will become another man's concubine. Don't let that bother you. The more important issue is me. This was not a real high point in husbanding, in the history of husbanding. Um, Turns out Sarah actually is taken into Pharaoh's harem. I've said this before. It's good to be king. You see something you want, you just take it. You just grab it. It's yours. Nobody can stop you. And that's what the Pharaoh apparently does with Sarah, brings her into his harem. And now understand what's at stake here. The promises of God to Abram are in jeopardy. The promise that that through Abraham and through Sarah is going to come a descendant one day who will bring blessing to all the nations. If Sarah is kept by Pharaoh in that harem, that promise will be polluted, will be corrupted, will not be fulfilled. And so what happens is God intervenes. 
And uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt ends up giving a lesson on integrity to Abram. You can read about it. Uh, Abram, this great man of God, gets schooled by the Pharaoh about how wrong this was, what he did. Now, the lesson doesn't stick because later on, Abram does exactly the same thing in chapter 20. Only this time, it's with a king less powerful, a king by the name of Abimelech. The point is, Abram is struggling to trust God in some of his difficult circumstances that he finds himself in. He's no pillar of spiritual maturity, but that's not to say he doesn't get some things right, because he does. In chapters 13 and 14, for example, there's this conflict between his servants and the servants of his nephew Lot. It's, it's all about grazing rights. They, they've got so many cattle uh, their families are so large that they can't actually live next to one another. The, the, uh, the surrounding countryside won't sustain the, uh, the cattle who are grazing there. And so, you know, uh, Abram deliberately gives Lot a, a choice of whatever land he wants and tells him he can have first choice, which is interesting because Abram, by rights of age and, and so on, could have insisted on choosing first. But I think, I think what we see here is, God, is Abram trusting God. I don't have to choose first. I don't have to get the best. A lot can take any, any land he wants, but my God will be with me. My God will provide. And Lot, of course, chooses the land he thinks is best, and that turns out badly for him later. Um, but uh, we, we see perhaps a step in the right direction of growing t- trust in the heart, in the mind, and the life of Abram. In chapter 14, uh, the same nephew Lot is captured in a battle between local chieftain kings. And this is, of course, in part because of where he chose to go live. Abram is told of what happens, and he's determined to rescue Lot. And we're told that Abram takes his 318 trained men, put soldiers there, which is kind of an indication to us of just how powerful uh, and how strong an individual Abram and his family uh, is. The, these 318 trained soldiers, man, that, that's like having a standing army as a part of. That doesn't mean that's all of the men. That's just the ones that were trained. And he goes in fast. He makes a daring raid and he rescues Lot from these kings. And it's a, it's a really interesting and fascinating story. But what comes out of it is Abram meets two more kings. Uh, the first king is very interesting, King of Sodom. And the king of Sodom offers Abram the spoils. You know, he's gone and gotten back Lot and he's freed all the people that those people had, had enslaved and taken with them as part of the booty, right? And the king of Sodom says to Abram, Abram, you can have all the riches, all the gold, all the, all the weapons, all the horses, all that. You can have all of that. Just, just give me the prisoners. I just want the prisoners. And what he was going to do with the majority of them, those who weren't his subjects, he, he was going to make them slaves, of course. And the message, the underlying message of this, of the king of Sodom, is that powerful men are allowed to grab and keep whatever they want, whatever they're able to, you see. And he invites Abram to be a part of that coalition, to be a part of that tribe. And Abram, at great personal cost, says, no, thank you. And if you read the The story itself, it says, because he didn't want to be in a situation where the king of Sodom can say, I made Abram rich. I made Abram powerful. Abram is trusting his God, which is a great thing. We see him growing. He's being discipled. And God responds to Abram in chapter 15, verse 1. He says to Abram, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Keep trusting in me, Abram. I've got you. I'm going to bless you. You don't need the king of Sodom to make you rich. You don't need to be a king like that king. You don't need to be powerful like he's powerful. Now, what's interesting is Abram meets another king here, a king you've all heard of, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is called priest of God most high in Genesis 14. So Abram finds God at work in a place he never would have expected, in a people he never would have expected, in a city, Salem, he never would have expected. Here is a guy who knows this same God that Abram is getting to know. And this is what we read. It says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. 
Melchizedek blesses Abram and blesses God, and he reminds Abram that his victories and the spoils that he happens to have are really just gifts given to him by God. These are blessings from God that don't really belong to Abraham or Abram at all. Not really. We're told in Genesis 14, 20, and Abraham gave him, or Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram tithes. This is the first recorded instance of this kind of thing happening uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, Abram worshiped God Almighty with a tithe. He gave it to this priest, Melchizedek, uh, as an offering to the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. And when Abram did that, he was, he was trusting He was living in covenant with his God, trusting in the blessing of God to sustain him and to provide for him because that's what giving, that's what tithing in that sense, that's what it meant then. That's frankly what it means even today. In fact, if you give, if you tithe to God, well, then I know you're trusting in him. You're saying, God, give me this day my daily bread because I need you to provide for me and I'm going to honor you with what you give me. It's the same dynamic that we see Abram doing. He's saying, you know, God, I know I can believe your promises. And when we don't do that, we're kind of just saying, you know what? I don't really trust your promise of provision or blessing. I'll take care of myself. I'm, I'm really going to take care of me. I got me. Good luck with that. But Abraham, you know, we see him getting some stuff wrong. We see him getting some stuff right. We see him, I think, actually growing uh, in these early chapters. And then he has a second encounter with God. This is Genesis chapter 15. God has a conversation with Abram where he further defines the relationship or clarifies the covenant, if you will. And we need to understand something here to enter into covenant relationships with anyone, but especially with God, is serious, serious business. Covenants were binding treaties, just like a marriage covenant is meant to be a binding treaty, just like a mortgage covenant. If you have a mortgage, that's a binding treaty. If you don't believe me, just stop making your payments and you'll hear from them. You know, those are binding treaties. Well, in fact, some covenants in that day were binding on pain of death. That's how serious the covenants were. In Genesis 15, 18, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Literally what it says, though, it says, The Lord God cut a covenant with Abram. That's the language. Because you see, when people made a covenant, very often there would be a ceremony connected with it. And part of that ceremony would be to take some animals and literally cut them in half. And they would place them across from each other, those halves, and they would create a pathway through which you could walk, a covenant walkway. And the parties making the covenant would pass between the pieces of the animals and that was symbolic it was saying symbolically in this walk that that may what happened to these animals happen to me if i do not keep the covenant if i am not faithful to the covenant and what's so interesting to me is that many many years later this is actually when judah is under siege jerusalem is under siege by nebuchadnezzar And uh, many people have already gone off into exile into Babylon, uh, but there are some still in the city and they're holding out and they made a covenant with God, but then they broke the covenant with God. And this is what we read. It says, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. God's saying, yeah, you're going to be cut in half. It's the same picture. So many centuries later, still cutting covenants. You see, when people make a covenant, they cut a covenant. It was serious business. They said, you can hold me accountable if I don't keep the covenant. May this, what happened to these parts, happen to me. And that's what's going on here in this picture. So in Genesis 15, God says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham asked, well, God, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Because there were two problems. Number one, he had no land. He possessed no land. And Abram's scratching his head saying, yeah, when am I ever going to possess any of this? And then the other problem is he doesn't even have a descendant who might someday possess some land. 
So God, how can I possibly believe you're going to keep these promises? And this is what God says. God says, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And then there's this intervening section in verses 13 and following where, you know, Abraham or Abram is in a trance. He's having a vision and God talks to him about his descendants. One day they're going to be in bondage in Egypt, but God's going to bring them out of Egypt. But then it says in 15, 17, and I want you to notice who takes the covenant walk between the pieces. It says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now in the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, smoke and fire frequently symbolize whose presence? You tell me. God, yeah. God. This is God passing through the pieces. You see, God is discipling Abram here. Uh, He wants Abram to learn to trust him. He wants Abram to know that he will fulfill the covenant even when Abram does not fulfill the covenant. This is so unusual. Normally, in a unilateral covenant, the, the more powerful person would have the weaker person pass through so that that weaker person would be reminded they're going to be cut in half if they don't keep the covenant. That's what the stronger party will do. But not here. Here, it's smoke and fire passing through the pieces. God says, may this happen to me if I don't keep all my promises to you, Abram. I am a promise-making, promise-keeping God, period. And I will be your God and you will be my people. Abram, as we've already seen, he is going to fail. (laughs) He is going to break the covenant. But God will not. God will not. God will keep it. God will even keep it for us. And we begin to see the significance of this moment when much later, uh, Jesus himself says to his disciples at the Last Supper, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, cut in my blood for the remission of sins. (laughs) You see, the covenant cuts The covenant sheds blood. Either our blood is shed because we are the guilty parties or in this case, Jesus' blood is shed for us. The covenant made here between God and Abram points to Jesus' new covenant, the one he's going to make. You see, the problem with covenants is simply that the human race never keeps them. We just never, ever do. And so the human race deserves the penalties of the covenant. But God wants to build a community for himself, so God will take the covenant penalties upon himself. And sometime in eternity past, there was some kind of conversation where Father and Son and Holy Spirit are talking to each other, and they're looking at the fact that the human race is going to be rebellious, self-centered, unfaithful, untrusting, and so on and so forth. And something's going to have to be done to take care of this sin if they want to have a community with them. And Jesus said, I'll do it. I will pay. I will suffer. I will cut a new covenant with my body. The blood that is shed, let that be my blood. I will be cut for them. And so Jesus completes the, what this is looking forward to here in Genesis 15. Jesus completes that one day, a covenant of grace. Now, back to Abram. God says that he's going to make a community out of Abram's descendants, but there's only one problem, and that is obvious. There are no descendants. Big, big problem here. Abram is in his 80s. Sarah is in her 70s. Genesis 16.1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. 
And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, on Sarah. Already, a lot of toxic things going on here. Now, understand this was common practice in the ancient Near East, having a concubine, that concubine becoming even a wife. And so Hagar bears uh, Ishmael, and very likely uh, it was Sarah that gave the name Ishmael to this child. We don't know that, but I'm guessing that's what happened because it means God hears. And Sarah's thinking, okay, so, so God has heard my lament and my cry, and now I have a male child through my concubine, you know, Hagar, and my servant Hagar, and so God hears. She's thinking this is the fulfillment of the promise. Abram is 86 years old, and this is Abram and Sarah's attempt to compensate for God's poor timing. You ever done that? Try to compensate for what God's not getting done in your life that you need to have done right now, you see. That's what's going on here. Hmm. So, God shows up again for another round of talks. And this is what we read, Genesis 17.1. When Abram was 99 years old. This is 13 years later now. Uh, the, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And you just got to go, wow. <laughs> Do you remember how old Abraham was when he first left Haran? He was 75 years old. So it has been now 24 years. Ishmael is about 13 years old. Uh, imagine Abraham hearing this, this promise from God. Because then God says, and, and there's, there's going to be a sign because, you know, we're in this covenant. You're going to be a, 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 a you're going to create great nations. Kings are going to come from you. And there's a sign that I'm going to put upon you so that you will not forget my promises. And he had to have known about the, you know, the sign of the covenant that God made with Noah, which was a rainbow, right? And God says, here's the sign of the covenant, uh, Abram. It's circumcision. And I, I don't know. I don't know what he thought, but I, I'm thinking he thought, how come Noah gets a rainbow and I get circumcision? But we read in verse 23, Abraham obeyed that very day. I might have prayed about it for a while, but anyway, Abraham obeyed that very day. The sign was to be a perpetual reminder of God's covenant promise and blessings. And anyone who wanted to join in on this family could. You didn't have to be an ethnic or this wasn't a racial thing. This, this was all about faith. Put your faith and your trust in him in God, and then have the sign of the covenant, and you were in. Now, even with all these promises and conversations with God, Abraham and Sarah had trouble believing this. And, of course, we can understand why. We know our, our own weakness of faith and trust. Um, in fact, they, when they are told about this, they both laugh at what God says. Abraham laughs in Genesis 17, 17. Sarah laughs in Genesis 18, 12. It says, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And uh, this just sounded absurd to Sarah. 
And it was absurd. Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 89 years old. This does not happen. And yet it does happen. A year later, a child is born. His name is Isaac, whose name means he laughs. God's got a great sense of humor here. Isn't that great? Uh, he, He is so good. God is so faithful. He is so capable of doing even the impossible. Because let's be honest, this is impossible. And so we're told in 21.8, and the child grew, this is Isaac, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. And so there's partying and there's rejoicing, but there's also brokenness in this family. Hagar is laughing now too, but not with the family. She's laughing at the family. Many of you know the story. Sarah wants Hagar and Ishmael sent away, and they are. Uh, But even in that story, God is gracious. He's gracious. He comes to Hagar when she's been sent out and her food and water is running out and and, uh, they're in the wilderness and and Hagar is at a point where she's just waiting to die along with her son. And God says, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Graciousness, goodness on the part of God. Now, one more story, or we can stop here. What would you like to do? One more story, Genesis 22. This, as far as we know, is the last time Abram has an encounter with God. At least it's the last one we're told about. This is what we read, Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. The writer wants us to know something that Abraham does not know, and that is that this is a test, right? Abraham does not know this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Abraham said, here I am. And of course, this isn't, this is not Abraham telling God where he is. This actually means something else. Abraham's not giving out some geographical information. What he's saying is, speak, Lord. Here I am, I'm listening. I'll obey, I will follow, tell me what you want me to do. You see, for 25 years now, Abraham has been listening to this voice. This voice told him to leave home once upon a time, and he did. And this voice told him that he was to be in covenant with God, and he is. And this voice told him that he would be a father through Sarah, not Hagar, but through Sarah, And he is. And now the voice speaks to him and says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on uh, one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And you might make a little note there in verse two because that's the first time the word love is used in scripture. And it's used for a father who is willing to sacrifice his beloved son. And this is not just his son. This is his only son. This is the son that was promised, the promised son. This is the miracle son. The son through whom God specifically said he was going to make a new people for himself. There is no other son. This was a very special child, a miracle child. And so for three days, Abraham walks towards Moriah with his son. Moriah is uh, actually, we know uh, it's it's in Jerusalem. It's, It's where the Temple Mount would eventually one day be built, the place of sacrifice. And that's where they're going. And verse six says that, that Abraham gives the wood to Isaac, his young son. And then there's this little detail, which I find interesting. Abraham himself carries the fire and the knife. It's almost like he's protecting his young son from danger. You know, you don't give a young child, here's the knife, son, or here's the fire, son. No, no, Abraham has that. And the test is this, will Abraham still trust God, the God of this covenant, the God who passed through the pieces, even when he doesn't understand? 
They're going along, and Isaac asks his dad this question. My father, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And that is a pregnant question. And Abraham's response is incredible. Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. That's what he's holding on to. And so they went both of them together. And so they come to the place and the writer keeps telling us in a way that he wants us to see that Abraham is one step at a time obeying God. He first builds an altar and that takes some time. But he builds an altar. I I presume that his son Isaac helped. He lays out the wood and now it's time. Abraham takes Isaac whom he loves and I can hardly imagine this. He ties him up. And then he places that little boy on that altar. This is the little boy that he partied with and played with and protected. The little boy named Laughter, which I'm sure he's not laughing now. That little boy is placed on the altar. And then Abraham takes the knife and he reaches toward heaven and he's about to plunge that knife into the heart of the child that represents all of his hope and all of his joy and certainly all of the future. And it's at that very moment that God cries out and says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am, Lord. It's the same phrase that he said earlier. Here I am, God. Where else would I be? What, what else would I be doing? Who, who else would I follow? I, I don't understand this, but here I am, God. And God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So understand, in a world that was filled with child sacrifice and filled with human sacrifice. God makes it really clear that that is not what he wants. What he wants is trust and obedience. What he wants is faith and community. And Abraham breathes a sigh of relief without question and he receives his son back as from the dead. The writer of Hebrews many centuries later reflected on what this story was all about and says he, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That was Abraham's hope. This is a God who, when he tells me to do something, I can do it, and I know he's still going to be faithful to the promises, even when this doesn't make any sense to me. Now, you know, when you look at verse 14, you, you, we have to ask the question, what was the point of all this? I mean, God, what are you up to here? What, what are you doing? Obviously, God didn't need to change or didn't need to understand what Abraham was really thinking. But God, what, what were you up to? What, what is it that you want Abraham to learn in this really harsh and seemingly ugly lesson? And this is what we read. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. You remember the story? Abraham, Abraham, don't, don't harm the child. And right, right, right over here in a thicket is a ram, a lamb. <coughs> provided by God for the sacrifice. Sacrifice isn't going to be Isaac. So Abraham called the name of that place, that place Moriah, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, where the temple would be built, where sacrifices are offered, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And that, friends, is the lesson that all of us need to learn. It's the lesson of life. It's the lesson of discipleship. This is what it's all about, teaching us that God can be trusted at all times in every circumstance. Even when we are confused, the Lord will provide. 
Yahweh will provide. And there are no caveats to that. It's not like the Lord will provide, if you do this, the Lord will provide. He'll provide you your daily bread. He will provide you life after this life, if this life of yours should end. He will provide a sacrifice well-pleasing for you and did that in his son, Jesus. The thing that's so hard for us to process and so hard for us to learn day in, day out, regardless of my circumstances, is that the Lord will provide. He's provided his son, Jesus. He provides his spirit for me today. He will provide for me tomorrow. The Lord will provide. There's a lot of things the Lord would have us learn in this life of Abram. But I think that's the big one. And I hope you're learning that. You know, we tend to think, hey, do you know an election's happening? Have you seen this? Have you heard this? It's amazing. You know, I don't know who you're voting for. I'll tell you who to vote for, but no, I don't know who you're voting for. But I'll tell you, don't be fooled. I don't care who you vote for. That person's not going to solve the problems that exist in us and in our nation that are rooted and grounded in sin. The Lord's going to provide that solution someday. And that will come in Jesus, right? Over and over and over. So, so as you operate through this season of political mayhem, you know, do it knowing that the Lord will provide. Our hope for the future doesn't rest in an election, in any particular nation. It rests in and it resides in what the Lord has provided and will provide. Anyway, let's pray. Father God, what a story we observe in the life of Abram. It points us to how big and how good and how great you are. You are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Even when we break covenant, you do not. Even when we don't understand a particular circumstance that we may be in, even in that circumstance, God, you want us to trust and obey as best we can each step of the way. And you will provide. So God, I pray that truth would bring comfort and encouragement to each and every heart here. And I pray, God, that, that we would see the truth of the fact that you provide that's illustrated so vividly, so powerfully, so gloriously in your son, Jesus. You provided him for us. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.